My name is Kimberly Chow Twin An. You could also just say, my name's Kimberly Chow, though written, I like it written out in full, but it's a little easier to just say Kimberly Chow, and you can also refer, yeah, just refer to me as Kimberly, whatever is helpful. Welcome to the Lonely Hour. This is Julia, and that was my friend Kimberly. She's the subject of our isolation diary today. About a year ago, Kimberly moved back to Detroit, where she grew up after 10 years in New York. It's been a weird time. I'm naturally an anxious person. I was already going through a period of anxiety and stress and depression brought on by various things. One of those things is being back in the place she was raised, which has its attendant baggage. Another is that Kimberly is currently a free agent. Working in and around food put her on the organizing path, and most recently she was the communications director at a social justice nonprofit. But she's taking some time to figure out the next phase of her career. I've had some meetings over the last couple weeks. Some of them really exciting. Actually, scratch that. I'm not going to talk about the meetings. What am I talking about? She had been talking about her wanting to be soft, patient, to give herself a little room. But that instinct was fighting with another one, which was to produce. Wouldn't it be great if, after transitioning out of her full-time job, she could churn out a book proposal or something right away? When the COVID-19 pandemic was declared a pandemic and people were starting to take it really seriously here, it both sort of sharpened my thinking and also just dissolved all of it. It kind of feels like nothing matters. Time doesn't exist. Nothing's ever going to be the same. So Kimberly was already experiencing a period of uncertainty. Now we all are. And the stakes are high. Those of us who are lucky enough to be at home and to have time to seek comfort are doing so. As for Kimberly, she's finding it on Instagram, watching videos of someone slowly making oatmeal or pouring a cup of coffee, something she calls gentle content, is soothing and even inspiring her right now. I've been seeing folks post pickled cherry blossoms. I'm walking right now, seeing if I can find the cherry trees in this neighborhood if there'll be blooms that I can pick to work on some more of my preserve projects. Baths have also been comforting. That's something Kimberly and I share. So here she is speaking to us from a steaming hot soak. My friend Bill was joking that I'm actually pretty well suited for quarantine cooking because I have so many odds and ends and bits and bobs secured somewhere in the pantry. Or maybe it's just a couple inches of bacon ends that I find all the way in the back of the freezer. I think 
having this kind of treasure keeping habit makes me resourceful. It makes me think of having a little bit of luxury, a little bit of pleasure, and hopefully every meal that I have. I think life is, life is finite. And why have undelicious meals? Deliciousness doesn't require luxury, though. Kimberly has moved into her parents' house for a spell, and there the freezer is stocked with pre-made items she normally doesn't purchase for herself, Eggo waffles, and her favorite, Xiaobing. A Taiwanese breakfast classic. It's a flaky flatbread studded with sesame seeds on the outside, and it's usually folded in half. And you can stuff it with scrambled eggs or maybe a piece of prosciutto or avocado. Though traditionally it's eaten just with fried egg or scrambled egg, sometimes with scallions. If you're eating it at home, especially outside of Taiwan, you're probably eating it frozen and put in the oven. Or like me, I like to put it in the toaster. Even though the first couple days I was here, I was taking the saobing out of the freezer and it was uncooked, not thawed. And I was just jamming the whole thing in the toaster and aggressively toasting again and again. Though I understand that's not the recommended way to get this thing to doneness and just opening up the saobing and cramming it full of chili crisp. I want to take a minute to tell you about a new documentary podcast called Telescope. Hosted by Jonathan Hirsch, creator of Dear Franklin Jones and the founder of Neon Hum Media, Telescope is a show that tells the stories of life in the time of coronavirus, stories of human struggle, resilience, and something we think a lot about here at The Lonely Hour, connection. Find new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. To listen to the show, just search for Telescope in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Now, another day, another soak in the tub for Kimberly. I made a tuna melt today with Ortiz Bonito del Norte tuna, partly because I love the oval tin that it comes in. I don't know, I just, it's whimsical, it delights me. I washed out the Ortiz tin with its beautiful red and yellow design and blue lettering and I brought it upstairs to my desk. I was so excited to put something in it and I put chocolates in it and I put it on the corner of the desk next to some cookbooks and then I forgot about it (laughs) and got on a call or something, sent some emails and then I came back to it. I knew what was in there but it made me laugh to take the lid off the tin and see there was chocolates inside instead of tuna. So that feels like a gift to myself. Food. That's what kept coming up again and again as I listened to all of the diaries Kimberly recorded for us. She boiled some eggs and topped them with anchovies. She roasted a chicken and left half of it safely packaged on the porch for her neighbor who crossed the street to pick it up and have a chat through the screen door. She stopped by Sister Pie Bakery to visit owner Lisa Lidwinski. I got a couple scones and a cup of coffee and stood on my blue star marker on the sidewalk at a distance from the next person on 
their blue star marker and we made a casual chat and asked how each each other was doing and then my order came and they put it on a sheet tray on a bench outside right outside the window and then I walked my six feet up to get it and picked it up and took it in my car and I remembered I had some preserved lemons that I had made and I asked Lisa if I could give them in return as something. I put them on the sheet tray and scurried away and went back into the safety of my side of the neighborhood and cleaned my house and wiped all my counters and wiped all the things I brought into my house and then took some phone calls, which now feel so much more comforting and so much safer than talking to people in the real world, even at a distance. Sharing food, giving gifts, that's Kim's love language, now more than ever. That's how she's connecting with the friends who, of course, she can't see in person. What I miss about my people is that we're so effusive and adulatory. And we love complimenting each other and flirting with each other with romantic intent, but also just friend flirting. I love that feeling. We love hyping each other up. I read this in a tweet a while ago, something about how standing your friends is the best thing, that there's nothing better than standing your friends, gassing them up, hyping them up, making them feel hot and smart and loved and brilliant. I love doing that for my people. I love it when they do it to me. The way she's doing that for people now is by sending care packages. She recently mailed one to our friend Jordana Rothman, who's in upstate New York. I knew immediately who it was from and suspected what it might be because it was addressed to a feral Gemini from a feral Gemini, which is a very useful phrase for Kim and I when thinking about our own behaviors and their uncanny alignment with our zodiac identities. But she sent me a packet of flower seeds, scarlet O'Hara poppies, and it was just an incredibly lovely gesture. And I think, you know, she and I had been discussing this garden project and some of my hesitation around it, deeply rooted in this fear of doing things badly and preferring not to do them if there's a chance that I won't do it perfectly. And in the note that she wrote me, she was like, this is for your adventure or just scatter them around the yard and see what happens. And I really appreciated that there was this permission baked into it that I felt really seen by her that I could engage with it in the way that felt right to me. And in a lot of ways, I think her sending me those seeds was the thing that got me into overdrive for actually doing the project because You know, I wanted to complete the cycle of the gift and use the gift in the way in which it was intended, which was introduce it to the earth and see what happens. Giving and receiving is something Kimberly loved about working in restaurants. It's an industry of taking care of people and taking care of each other and the feeling of going to a friend's restaurant and then pouring you something at the end of the night or topping off your glass or sending out dessert or working the host stand somewhere and seeing a friend's name in the book or seeing someone come down the street on a day that I was working and not expecting to see them in that 
kind of light up look in their face and in my face and wanting to make it special when they came and sat down. And so Kimberly's story has led us to restaurants. This industry, which she and I both love so much, has been incredibly hard hit by this pandemic and the path to reopening and rebuilding is not clear. I could think of no better person to paint this picture for you than Howie Kahn, a journalist and contributing editor for the Wall Street Journal magazine. It's the hospitality business. And if you think about what that means, it means you're in the hands of people who not only will and can take care of you, but they want to. They've studied it. Their intention is to make you happy, to leave in a better mood than the mood in which you came in. I'm getting sort of emotional talking about this. I think the great restaurateurs want to change everybody's life just a little bit with a single meal. It's something that seems incredibly simple and maybe we take it for granted, but the ambition of that is really noble and it's really a tremendous thing. Howie launched Takeaway Only, which he refers to as an emergency podcast about the hospitality industry in crisis. What's going to happen to the tens of millions of people who work at restaurants, he wondered. What's going to happen to the businesses that surround them? Restaurants are cornerstones of community. I've seen in New York entire neighborhoods rise up around the idea of a single restaurant. The doors open, there's delicious food. People start gathering at a place where people didn't gather before. Suddenly there's a neighborhood. Other businesses spring up. More people come. And there are also places to appreciate someone's vision and somebody's creativity. I love seeing that in action. And the feeling of the room. You can kind of feel the electricity and the buzz of a place that's happy, brimming with other people's happiness that makes you feel happy too. What other place feels like that? You don't walk into a bank and suddenly feel like everyone here is so happy. I'm going to join in their revelry. You don't walk into a library and feel that way. You don't walk into a grocery store and feel that way. But restaurants are also ill-suited for disaster. If a restaurant has a bad Wednesday night, it's not good for the well-being of the restaurant. If a restaurant has a really bad week, a restaurant could close. The margins are very thin. I know chefs who have a profit margin of just over 1% and are just kind of thrilled that they didn't have to close down. There are so many costs. Staff, food, liquor, liquor licenses, maintenance, rent, taxes, electricity, water, linens, websites, maybe PR firms. And those costs can rise. Your lease terms can expire and your landlord might want five times the rent because they think that's market value. It would be one thing if you could decide, okay, I'm going to make my dishes five times more expensive to help me pay this new rent increase, but you can't do that because people aren't going to pay five times the price because a different market is demanding a different amount of money from a restaurateur. For me, it's unfortunate that food is sort of undervalued. The the rate at which restaurants can raise their price is almost alarmingly slow, and it hurts their business in the long run. So the industry was already skating on thin ice. Then came coronavirus. 
Restaurants that didn't offer delivery before this pandemic have had to pivot, creating essentially entirely new concepts with painstaking sanitation protocols in a matter of days. With a five-person crew, daily temperature checks, curbside takeaway, and a whole lot of grit, Caroline Glover has kept Annette, her restaurant in Aurora, Colorado, open. For now. So I'm going to attempt to talk through a map over at Woodfire Grill right now. It's Friday night, and Caroline's watching orders come through. She sees on the board a customer who's become a regular. She knows it's the same person who's ordered the past three weeks because it's always three burgers, two midwell, one medium, sauce on the side. I definitely am curious as to what they look like, mostly because it's just weird to know so much about a person and their preference without knowing who they are or what they look like. Oh, I see. My sister as well is ordering tonight. She's actually picking up a burger for a friend who's a nurse, and he's a few years younger than me and just lost his girlfriend a month ago to what they thought was COVID. They diagnosed it as COVID until they got the test results back, and it ended up just being a really awful case of pneumonia. It's a total gut-wrenching situation and a good reminder of not much is guaranteed. Chefs all over the country are, like Caroline, still cooking. They're cooking for families. They're cooking for frontline healthcare workers. They're still cooking for us, even though they're scared because they can't see a clear future. Here's Eric Rivera, chef and owner of Otto in Seattle. I wake up every day, every night. I'm sleeping like maybe in intervals of 30 to 45 minutes where I just wake up and I'm like, I wonder if we're going to, today's going to be the last day. That's a constant part of anxiety that I'm dealing with right now. It's not hard. It's not the end of the world. There's bigger problems out there than just me having a restaurant. But in order to keep things going, I'm trying to figure it out to keep our restaurant going and keep our staff employed and keep helping out other purveyors. Eric has been struggling to figure out how to connect with his customers in the era of contactless delivery only. We make something here at the restaurant. We send it, meaning our own delivery people. And we're relying on (laughs) the guests to understand what we're doing in a way or what we want to have happen. And sometimes even relying on them to cook parts and pieces of it. I don't know if there's things that are lost in translation. I don't know if there's things that they're not understanding. Or I don't understand if they're just like, man, this sucks. (laughs) Is this good? Is the restaurant that I just bought this from really a good restaurant? Or is it just kind of a piece of shit? You're just kind of guessing a little bit. You can't read the room. You can't see a reaction. You can't see anything from them. You just kind of have to be like, all right, put it in a bag and I hope it works. Despite all of this, Eric has been sending meals to the University of Washington Medical Center and to Mary's Place, a shelter for women and children without homes. We are going through a pandemic and chefs have turned into some of the most effective first responders there are. Here's Howie Kahn again. They are working themselves to the bone to give something to their community. They're trying to keep their restaurants open and they're trying to keep their staff employed and get some money into their pockets too. But these aren't people who can sit still. They will give and give and give until they just can't do it anymore. It's a special breed of person who does that. I want this pandemic to change the way customers think about where they're eating. And I don't mean that in the way where I want them to know more about where the salmon comes from or who grew the microgreens. 
I want people to consider what kinds of humans are running these places and who they want to support with their hard-earned dollars. The choices people are making in terms of where they go for a while are going to be the difference as to who stays open and who closes. So I think being very conscientious about who's pocket you're putting money into is really important. So support your local, support people you like, support people whose morals you respect. In terms of organizations you can support right now, Howie recommends World Central Kitchen, which is feeding people in need, and One Fair Wage, a nonprofit that's currently providing cash assistance to restaurant workers, car service drivers, delivery workers, personal service workers, and more, who desperately need the money. Thank you for any support. And thank you to the cooks taking care of us. Thank you to the lovely Kimberly Chow for being with us on this episode, which was produced by me, Julia Bainbridge, and mixed and sound designed by Keith J. Nelson. Thanks also to Jordana Rothman, Howie Kahn, Caroline Glover, and Eric Rivera. My dearest Peyton Turner is the Lonely Hours illustrator, and our theme song is by Chris McLeod. Carrie Ann Thomas, thanks for your help with this one. You're wonderful. And Patrick Janelle recorded the applause for essential workers outside of his window on Thompson Street. Thanks, Patrick. To everyone, take care of yourselves. And please, take care of each other. <laughs>